You're listening to a Frequency Podcast Network production in association with City News. It didn't take long for the protests to begin. Within hours of Roe v. Wade being struck down on Friday, June the 24th, in a 5-4 decision by members of the U.S. Supreme Court, both anti-abortion and pro-choice proponents were making their voices heard. One group, jubilant. The other, angry and dismayed. The 50-year-old federal law granting every American citizen the right to an abortion was now a matter for states to decide. But the consequences of the fall of Roe v. Wade went far beyond folks marching in the streets. If you happen to be a pregnant person in the state of Alabama or Kentucky or West Virginia or any number of mostly Southern and Western states, if you had an abortion scheduled for Monday, On Friday, those plans would become null and void and illegal. Since the repeal of Roe v. Wade, reproductive rights advocates, academics, abortion providers, those on the political left and those on the right have been in full battle mode. What happens next? How does this play out? Who will suffer? Here in Canada, people also took to the streets in solidarity on both sides of the issue. In Canada, the worry isn't as much over losing the right to abortion. Our laws just don't work that way. The worry is how our neighbors to the South might start to sway the political and ideological arguments around reproductive rights taking place in our own country. Canada is also poised for an influx of those seeking abortions coming our way from the U.S., what will that mean for an already taxed healthcare system? My guest today has been covering the overturn of Roe v. Wade in her role as an investigative reporter. She's a Canadian living in the U.S. She's also someone who has been thinking about this issue in a very personal way. I'm Garvey Bailey. This is The Big Story. Hillary Beaumont is an investigative journalist covering everything from the climate crisis to reproductive health. She writes for The Guardian, The Narwhal, and Al Jazeera. Hello, Hillary. Thanks for being with us today. Hey, Garvia. It's really nice to speak with you. Hillary, I want to start at the very, kind of at the beginning, not at the very beginning of Roe v. Wade, but I want to go to your reaction to the news that Roe v. Wade had been overturned. What were your initial thoughts when you heard the news? For sure. So um, as you know, like it was kind of expected because Politico had published the leaked decision and we all knew that it was very, very likely that the Supreme Court would in short order, overturn Roe v. Wade. But it still didn't change how I felt that day. I I remember like landing in a plane um, in Denver and seeing the decision, you know, pop up on my phone immediately and just feeling like really angry, powerless, uh, revolted seeing that news. Um, And I remember like the man next to me on the plane, like saw me reading and tweeting about it. And he, he said like, women deserve the right to choose and asked me like, where's your freedom? And so that felt like a nice moment of solidarity, even though it was this moment where 
I was thinking how devastating this would be for so many people in the U.S. Mm. One of the things that I found um, really incredible once once the once the decision came down was how quickly things started to move in the U.S. So I'm wondering if you can give us a sense of what this ban meant as it rolled out from state to state and where we're at right now. Absolutely. You're totally right. Um, Things have been changing extremely quickly right away. A lot of states already had trigger bans in place, which meant that Uh, immediately abortion became banned or restricted. And then there have been other states that immediately tried to pass bans or restrict abortion. And so as we're recording July 7th, uh, there are at least nine states where there is currently an abortion ban in effect. And those are mostly in the South and Central U.S. And then also you've got advocates and lawyers on the ground in those states trying to fight those bans. So things are literally changing hour by hour, day by day. And we also know that likely when all of this settles, there will be between 24 and 26 states in the U.S. that have banned or restricted abortion. So that means half the country. So I'm wondering about the ramifications of these mixed bags of laws across the U.S. What does that mean for those seeking abortion, for providers, for pregnant people? What does that look like? Definitely. So I think that if you can think of it from the perspective of someone in one of these states that where it's currently banned, you know, they're seeing some of the clinics near them, the remaining clinics near them closing. And maybe they had an appointment and now they no longer have an appointment. They're going to need to try to seek an abortion elsewhere if they have the means to do that. Like if you're wealthy and you have the resources, you can tap into a network of abortion funds and volunteers that will help you travel to the nearest state where you can get a procedure, a surgical abortion. Um, There will also be, you know, a lot of people who are trying to get uh, abortion pills, which are mifepristone and misoprostol, to uh, people in those states who can no longer access abortion. So there are those options, but for the most part, that really is for people who have the resources to access it. Right. There is a, a definite feeling of this splitting the the country up into those that can and those that cannot access these sorts of services. So who are the people that will be most affected by the bans that we're we're seeing? From every expert I've talked to, it would be Black, Indigenous people of color who will be most impacted. It will be young people, especially. Um, and this is because there are large populations of BIPOC folks in the southern states that are most impacted. And um, these populations also already face barriers to getting contraception, barriers in the healthcare system. Um, and there are also these historic socioeconomic factors that come into play that mean that, you know, people can't just, you know, drop hundreds of dollars and like go drive to the next state or, um, you know, immediately have the funds to pay for childcare for the kids they already have um, or, you know, 
afford the cost of a hotel for a couple nights uh, to travel out of state. So those are the people who will be most impacted. Also, um, especially young people, we're talking about like children and teenagers. Um, There are a number of states now where there is no exception to these bans in the case of rape or incest. And so we're talking about children, teenagers who are victims of rape and incest who will be impacted by this, who cannot get abortions. Um, There was a case just recently that The Guardian covered of a a 10-year-old in Ohio who was raped and who had to travel out of state to get an abortion. I mean, the stories that you are hearing, that being one of them, um, they began coming out fast and furiously, and you were on the ground reporting those. What were some of those other stories that you began to hear um, in regards to this this ban? What what came out and um, what stories uh, drew you and, and did you report on during this time? Most recently, I've been really interested in what today's sanctuary networks will look like for uh, for people who need abortions. So I've been chatting with um, folks who are part of these like volunteer networks or nonprofit organizations. And I did talk to one group in Texas that they had had like a huge surge in demand back in September when Texas first uh, implemented their six week ban. But then as soon as, you know, the Supreme Court struck down Roe v. Wade, they had a surge of requests also in Oklahoma next door. And so they are just seeing these huge surges in demand. And I've also spoken to folks who have been turned away from abortions in the past, like previous to Roe v. Wade being overturned. Um, So I did speak to one woman in California who she was turned away from an abortion that she needed. And um, she actually, you know, carried the pregnancy to term and nearly died in childbirth from eclampsia. She had seizures, blacked out, woke up three days later and had an emergency C-section. And, you know, her her family was warned that she might not make it. And uh, I understand from long-term studies that have been done into people who've been turned away from abortions that this could become more common that, you know, people will be turned away, forced to carry pregnancies to term, and there will be severe effects from that. Well, can we talk about those effects? Because there are going to be ripple effects of Roe v. Wade being overturned that go beyond just the right to a surgical abortion. Uh, what are some of those those effects that we're that we're going to be looking at over the the next um, you know you know it's been fifty years. What does the next fifty years look like then? Yeah, I mean, I think anyone you talk to about this like cannot predict uh, the severity of this. Like, we don't know exactly what's going to happen, but we do have you know, enough evidence to know, like, what happens to people who are turned away. And uh, I spoke to, like, a an academic who has been studying this for years, and she did, like, an amazing uh, long-term study following a thousand people who uh, tried to access abortions and how their lives diverged when they were able to access abortion versus when they were turned away. Um, and she found that 
when people are denied abortions, there are devastating economic impacts, um, including increased eviction rates and lower credit scores. People are also more likely to stay in contact with violent partners uh, when they carry pregnancy to term. They're more likely to experience severe health effects, like I mentioned, including eclampsia and Actually, of the thousand people the study followed, two women, two young women died in childbirth after they were turned away from abortions. I struggle with this just because it is it is such a, you know, as a as a woman, as as someone who is um, who thinks about, um, you know, as a mother thinking about reproductive health all the time because I have a daughter. It just feels like such a personal affront. You know, did did you feel that way when you when um when Roe v. Wade was was overturned, did you have that kind of personal connection to to the to the ban? Yeah, it, it immediately made me think about choice and freedom. It made me think about a lot of my friends right now who are pregnant and having kids, and how happy I am for them that they are making that choice. But it, you know, it also made me think about my own abortion that I had in Atlantic Canada and like the how hard it was for me to even access that back then. I was in Halifax, it was 2015, and at this point, mifepristone and misoprostol, the abortion pills, were not yet legal in Canada. And so, and also, like, as you probably know, like, there's uh, just a lack of access on the East Coast. There are only a few hospitals that will provide abortion, uh, surgical abortions, and because of the overwhelming demand for abortion services and and uh, so few places able to uh, to provide it, there are just huge wait lists. And so I remember like making the decision very quickly that I needed an abortion. At the time, I was actually waiting to hear back about a job in Toronto, and I knew that I might have to move within a few weeks. And um, I you know, asked immediately at a clinic, like, I, I need an abortion. I need this to happen, like, yesterday. <laughs> like, you know, this needs to happen. Um, and they they said, like, unfortunately, because of the wait list, you're going to have to wait three weeks. So I was forced to remain pregnant for much longer than I wanted to be. And it was really, really awful. It impacted my work at the time. Um, I had to turn down assignments. I felt like exhausted and sick and anxious and didn't know, um, you know, when this is going to happen and, or if I'd have to like go to Toronto and get it or something like I had no idea what was going to happen. And, um, yeah, it, it was just like very devastating at the time to like be forced to be in that state against my will. And yeah, I mean, I remember especially like sharing that experience with some close friends at the time and they immediately disclosed that they had also had abortions. And I realized like how common this is, even though there's like this culture of silence around it, especially on the East Coast. And I can imagine in the Deep South as well, you know, there's people don't really talk about it, but I realized how normal it is and how, how also like normal it is to have access issues in yeah. Canada too. And well, the irony of that is that, 
now in 2022, what we're going to see, I imagine, as as the saying goes, when the U.S. sneezes, Canada gets a cold. And so with a situation like this, this ban, will we be seeing more of people coming to Canada to to access our our services and how do you see this this ban affecting us as Canadians here and our own healthcare system yeah that's a really good question so i i do think that what you're going to see is people who are wealthy enough will be able to travel for abortion in the us um so there will be some americans who come over the border uh, to access abortion in Canada. This happened, you know, before uh, sort of going the other way. So in in the, you know, before the 80s in Canada, before abortion was um, decriminalized in Canada, there would be folks, Canadians who would go uh, south to America through like very established routes um, to access abortions. And now it's, you know, experts have told me that it's going to switch the other way. Uh, so in places like Michigan, for example, people might have to come over the border to Southern Ontario to access the procedure, which they can do. They would just have to pay out of pocket, uh, which can be like 400 or $500 for surgical abortion. And yeah, I, I mean, I think that that could carry an increased demand on the Canadian healthcare system, but I don't know to what extent. Right. It's all such a wait and see kind of situation that we that we find ourselves in. And it makes me think about our own fears here in Canada, because I think in you reflecting on your whole, your experience, there was, I'm sure there was, you know, thousands of women doing the same thing. And then thinking about if we should be concerned about abortion rights in this country. Yeah, I absolutely think we should be. Um, I think that the U.S. case shows that when there's a united, determined group of conservative activists that they can and will overturn abortion rights. That's what they were able to do in the U.S. by um, advocating for conservative Supreme Court justices being appointed under Trump. And they have won a huge victory for themselves. And I would not be surprised if, you know, anti-abortion activists in Canada are taking notes, although I'm not sure specifically how they would try to do a similar thing in Canada since it works differently. But I think that we should also just realize that Canada doesn't just have like free and open access to abortion, right? Like there are huge areas of Canada that do not have access to abortion where people would have to travel long distances or would not be able to access abortion. And that goes with for other sexual and reproductive uh, health care as well, um, including like rape kits or HIV care. Like this is like something where rural access is a huge issue in Canada. What was Canada's reaction to the Roe v. Wade decision? Just general, like our general population, what were you hearing? Yeah, I mean, well, immediately I got a message from my mom saying that, you know, she saw the decision and found it really heart-wrenching was the word she used. Um, and I think that you saw like immediately so many people across Canada feeling outraged, um, I just saw that like all over the internet. And 
also like politicians in Canada were immediately saying like, you know, we're welcoming Americans who need abortions to come here. And like a lot of people who I think, especially like the older generation that really had to fight for abortion rights back in the day. Like, I think that a lot of them you're seeing both in Canada and the U.S., um, they really are like feeling the fight right now and they're not okay with this and they're not ready to let it go. They're, they feel like they're going to fight for those rights for the younger generation now. Yeah. And tell me about fighting those for those rights, both both here and in the U.S. What is actually being done on the ground? What are this? What are the uh, the tussles that are happening to uh, push back on Roe v. Wade? First of all, I think an important difference now versus like back in the day before Roe v. Wade um, is that misopristol and mifepristone are much more available now than they were back then. So um, there have also been like recent changes in the pandemic um, that allow telehealth to become more available. So you could actually see doctors prescribing abortion pills online and then mailing them. And you've got like some states trying to ban that, but it's like very hard to enforce you know, a ban on abortion pills through the mail. You've also got like um, activists in Mexico saying that they're going to mail abortion pills to people in the States. So there's like kind of a little bit of like a, a, a push toward that because abortion pills can be used really safely at home early in pregnancy. But for those people who need surgical abortions, I think that like what you're seeing mostly is the the kind of liberal states that are especially on the coasts of the U.S. Um, starting to pass bills like as quickly as they possibly can to enshrine abortion rights and make access easier and change um, legal liability standards. And also in some cases, states are putting their own government-funded abortion funds in place. So you've kind of got these networks that are establishing themselves saying like, we will be sanctuary states uh, for folks who need it. There are still going to be major access access issues, but I think those are some at least like encouraging things that are happening. Yeah, because when we talk about it being ab- ab- abortion being illegal, I think a lot of people think, well, what exactly does that mean? Does that does the rule of law fall on um, a pregnant person if they're if, if they're found out to have had an abortion? Does it fall on the the shoulders of the practitioner or those who have supplied, like you said, um, uh, medical abortion pills? What does that illegality look like? Mm-hmm. So I think that the Supreme Court decision basically like kicked this back to the states, right? So each state gets to decide what their abortion rules are going to be. And so, um, for example, in Texas, you have a six-week ban and you also have this um, civil law that allows anyone to sue any person who is aiding someone in getting an abortion. So that would be like this civil process that is really scary, obviously. Um, but it, it's kind of state by state. Um, you're seeing a lot of abortion clinics closing in these states because they they know that 
their doctors no longer have the right, the legal right to provide these abortions. And so really what it ends up being is like this, this major access issue um, of like these abortion deserts where you no longer have clinics that are available to people. So that's mainly how it's becoming criminalized, that there are no longer providers that can legally do those procedures or prescribe abortion pills. For those who have been anti-abortion, this is a massive victory. So I'm wondering what the next fight on the horizon is going to be in reproductive health now that this door has been swung open. Absolutely. That's such an important question. I think that uh, because there is a conservative dominated Supreme Court at this point. Um, a lot of people are rightly worried that there are a number of things that are uh, under threat all of a sudden. And that includes same-sex marriage in the U.S., um, you know, uh, contraception, the right to contra- contraception. Um, I, I think a lot of people are also worried, like on a local level, about sex education and, you know, trans rights as well. Um, I, th- I think that, like, having a conservative dominated Supreme Court suddenly means that these rights can all be overturned and uh, people are right to be really afraid of that. You know, you are on the ground, you're speaking with people. I just wonder about those real life feelings that are resonating with you as you speak to people impacted by the overturn of Roe v. Wade. Is it is it a feeling of, of defeat or is it sadness? Is it uh, anger? What are you seeing and what are you what are you feeling from from those uh, deeply affected? More than ever, I'm hearing from people that they want to speak out about their own abortion stories. Like I, I do remember talking to that woman who nearly died in, in childbirth and Mm -hmm. how she wanted to speak up about this now because, you know, she's, she realizes that like her story can actually change things and destigmatize this conversation. And it's also the reason that I wanted to share my own story because it's, it's something where if you feel that, you know, there's a culture of silence around something, then uh, people don't realize like how normalized this is. That I, I think like abortion is like a very normal thing in our society. We just never talk about it. And so what I'm hearing from people for the most part is that they want to like talk more openly about this. And they also want to like fight back about these very against these very restrictive laws. I think that I've also heard from people that they're, you know, they're finding hope thinking back to the civil rights movement and the idea that you can have like a a broad solidarity across a lot of different groups fighting for the same human rights. So yeah, I, I am asking people in almost every interview, like, you know, where do you find hope in this? And some people are saying that they're like, they're devastated and they don't see hope. And others are saying like, we need to remember previous movements that, and previous struggles that were successful. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you so much for speaking with us today, Hillary. Of course. Thank you for having me and thanks for giving me the opportunity to talk about this. That was The Big Story. For more, head to thebigstorypodcast.ca. Find us on Twitter at TheBigStoryFPN. Talk to us anytime via email. Hello at thebigstorypodcast.ca. And of course, you can call us 
anytime, 416-935-5935. If you're able to review this podcast, please do so. We'd be happy to hear from you. All right, sound good? I'm Garview Bailey, sitting in for Jordan Heath Rawlings this week. We'll talk tomorrow.